Chapter 6. Kingston. Instructive Remarks on Early English History. Instructive Observations on Carved Oak and Life in General. Sad Case of Stivings, Jr. Musings on Antiquity. I Forget That I Am Steering. Interesting Result. Hampton Court Mays. Harris as a Guide. It was a glorious morning, late spring or early summer, as you care to take it, when the dainty sheen of grass and leaf is blushing to a deeper green, and the year seems like a fair young maid, trembling with strange, wakening pulses on the brink of womanhood. The quaint back streets of Kingston, where they came down to the water's edge, looked quite picturesque in the flashing sunlight, the glinting river with its drifting barges, the wooded towpath, the trim-kept villas on the other side, Harris in a red and orange blazer grunting away at the skulls, the distant glimpses of the gray old palace of the Tudors all made a sunny picture, so bright but calm, so full of life, and yet so peaceful, that early in the day though it was, I felt myself being dreamily lulled off into a musing fit. I mused on Kingston, or Kingiston as it was once called in the days when Saxon kinges were crowned there. Great Caesar crossed the river there, and the Roman legions camped upon its sloping uplands. Caesar, like in later years Elizabeth, seems to have stopped everywhere, only he was more respectable than good Queen Bess. He, did, he didn't put up at the public houses. She was nuts on public houses, was England's virgin queen. There's scarcely a pub of any attraction within ten miles of London that she does not seem to have looked at, or stopped at, or slept at some time or other. I wonder now, supposing Harris, say, turned over a new leaf and became a good and great man and got to be prime minister and died, if they would put up signs over the public houses that he had patronized. Harris had a glass of bitter in this house. Harris had two of scotch. Cold here in the summer of 88. Harris was chucked from here in December 1886. No, there would be too many of them. It would be the houses that he had never entered that would become famous. Only house in South London that Harris never had a drink in. The people would flock to it to see what they could what could have been the matter with it. How poor weak minded King Edwy must have hated Kingston. The coronation feast had been too much for him. Maybe boar's head stuffed with sugar plums did not agree with him. It wouldn't with me, I know. And he had had enough of sack and mead, so he slipped from the noisy revel to steal a quiet moonlight hour with his beloved Elgiva. Perhaps from the casement, standing hand in hand, they were watching the calm moonlight on the river while from the distant halls the boisterous revelry floated in broken bursts of faint-heard din and tumult. Then brutal Otto and St. Dunstan forced their rude way into the quiet room and hurl coarse insults at the sweet-faced queen, and drag poor Edwy back to the loud clamber of the drunken brawl. Years later, to the crash of battle music, Saxon kings and Saxon revelry were buried side by side, and Kingston greatness... Kingston's greatness passed away for a time, to rise once more when Hampton Court became the palace of the Tudors and the Stuarts, and the royal barges strained at their moorings on the river's bank, and bright-cloaked gallants swaggered down the water steps to cry, "'What fairy, ho, good zooks, Many of the old houses round about speak very plainly of those days when Kingston was a royal borough, and nobles and courtiers lived there near their king, and the long road to the palace gates was gay all day with clanking steel and prancing palfies and rustling silks and velvets, and fair faces. The large and spacious houses, with their oriel latticed windows, their huge fireplaces, and their gabled roofs, breathe of the days of hose and doublet, of pearl-embroidered stomachers, and complicated oaths. They were upraised in the days when men know how, knew how to build. The hard red bricks have only grown more firmly set with time, 
and their oak stairs do not creak and grunt when you try to go down them quietly. Speaking of oak staircases reminds me that there is a magnificent carved oak staircase in one of the houses in Kingston. It is a shop now in the marketplace, but it was evidently once the mansion of some great personage. A friend of mine, who lives in Kingston, went in there to buy a hat one day, and in a thoughtless moment put his hand in his pocket and paid for it then and there. The shopman, he knows my friend, was naturally a little staggered at first, but quickly recovering himself, and feeling that something ought to be done to encourage this sort of thing, asked our hero if he would like to see some fine old carved oak. My friend said he would, and the shopman thereupon took him through the shop and up the staircase of the house. The balusters were a superb piece of workmanship, and the wall all the way up was oak-paneled, with carving that would have done credit to a palace. From the stairs they went into the drawing-room, which was a large, bright room, decorated with a somewhat startling, though cheerful, paper of a blue ground. There is nothing, however, remarkable about the apartment, and my friend wondered why he had been brought there. The proprietor went up to the paper and tapped it. It gave forth a wooden sound. Oak, he explained, all carved oak right up to the ceiling, just the same as you saw on the staircase. But, great Caesar, man, expostulated my friend, you don't mean to say you have covered over the carved oak with blue wallpaper. Yes, was the reply, it was expensive work. Had to matchboard it all over first, of course, but the room looked cheerful now. It was awful gloomy before. I can't say I altogether blame the man, which is doubtless a great relief to his mind. From his point of view, which would be that of the average householder, desiring to take life as lightly as possible, and not that of the old curiosity shop maniac, there is reason on his side. Carved oak is very pleasant to look at and to have a little of, but it is no doubt somewhat depressing to live in, but it is no doubt somewhat depressing to live in for those whose fancy does not lie that way. It would be like living in a church. No, what was sad in his case was that he, who didn't care for carved oak, should have had his drawing-room paneled with it, while people who do care for it have to pay enormous prices to get it. It seems to be the rule of this world. Each person has what he doesn't want, and other people have what he does want. Married men have wives and don't seem to want them, and young single fellows cry out that they can't get them. Poor people who can hardly keep themselves have eight hearty children. Rich old couples with no one to leave their money to die childless. Then there are girls with lovers. The girls that have lovers never want them. They say they would rather be without them, that they bother them, and why don't they go and make love to Miss Smith and Miss Brown, who are plain and elderly and haven't caught any lovers? They themselves don't want lovers. They never mean to marry. It does not do to dwell on these things. It makes one so sad. There was a boy at our school. We call him Sanford and, Mor and Merton. His real name was Stivings. He was the most extraordinary lad I ever came across. I believed he really liked study. He used to get into awful rows for sitting up in bed and reading Greek. And as for French irregular verbs, there was simply no keeping him away from them. He was full of weird and unnatural notions about being a credit to his parents and an honor to the school, and he yearned to win prizes and grow up and be a clever man, and had all those sorts of weak-minded ideas. I never knew such a strange creature, yet harmless, mind you, as the babe unborn. Well, that boy used to get ill about twice a week so that he couldn't go to school. There never was such a boy to get ill as that Sanford and Merton. If there was any known disease going within ten miles of him, he had it, and had it badly. He would take bronchitis in the dog days and have hay fever at Christmas. After a six-week period of drought, he would be stricken down with rheumatic fever, and he would go out in a November fog and come home with a sunstroke. They put him under laughing gas one year, poor lad, and drew all his teeth and gave him a false set, because he suffered so terribly with toothache. And then it turned to neuralgia and earache. 
He was never without a cold, except once for nine weeks while he had scarlet fever. And he always had chilblains. During the great cholera scare of 1871, our neighborhood was singularly free from it. There was only one reputed case in the whole parish. That case was young Stivings. He had to stop in bed when he was ill and eat chicken and custard and hothouse grapes, and he would lie there and sob because they wouldn't let him do at-Latin exercises and took his German grammar away from him. And we other boys, who would have sacrificed ten terms of our school life for the sake of being ill for a day, and had no desire whatever to give our parents any excuse for being stuck up about us, couldn't catch so much as a stiff neck. We fooled about in drafts, and it did us good and freshened us up. And we took things to make us sick, and they made us fat, and gave us an appetite. Nothing we could think of seemed to make us ill, until the holidays began. Then, on the break up, breaking up day, we caught colds and whooping cough and all kinds of disorders, which lasted till the term recommenced, when, in spite of everything we could maneuver to the contrary, we would get suddenly well again, and be better than ever. Such is life, and we are but as grass that is cut down, and put into the oven, and baked. To go back to the carved oak question... They must have had very fair notions of the artistic and the beautiful, our great-great-grandfathers. Why, all our art treasures of today are only the dug-up commonplaces of three or four hundred years ago. I wonder if there is any real intrinsic beauty in the old soup plates, beer mugs, and candle snuffers that we prize so now, or if it is only the halo of age glowing around them that gives them their charms in our eyes. The old blue that we bang about our walls as ornaments were the common everyday household utensils of a few centuries ago, and the pink shepherds and the yellow shepherdesses that we hand round now for all our friends to gush over and pretend they understand were the unvalued mantle ornaments that the mother of the 18th century would have given the baby to suck when he cried. Will it be the same in the future? Will the prized treasures of today always be the cheap trifles of the day before? Will rows of our willow-patterned dinner plates be ranged above the chimney pieces of the great in the years 2000 and odd? Will the white cups with the gold rim and the beautiful gold flower inside, species unknown, that our Sarah Janes now break in sheer lightheartedness of spirit, be carefully mended and stood upon a bracket and dusted only by the lady of the house? That china dog that ornaments the bedroom of my furnished lodgings. It is a white dog. Its eyes are blue. Its nose is a delicate red with black spots. Its head is painfully erect, and its expression is amiably carried to the verge of imbecility. I do not admire it myself. Considered as a work of art, I may say it irritates me. Thoughtless friends jeer at it, and even my landlady herself has no admiration for it, and excuses its presence by the circumstance that her aunt gave it to her. But in two hundred years' time, it is more than probable that the dog will be dug up from somewhere or other, minus its legs, and with its tail broken, and will be sold for old china and put in a glass cabinet, and people will pass it round and admire it. They will be struck by the wonderful depth of the color on the nose, and speculate as to how beautiful the bit of the tail that is lost no doubt was. We, in this age, do not see the beauty of that dog. We are too familiar with it. It is like the sunset and the stars. We are not awed by their loveliness because they are common to our eyes. So it is with that china dog. In 2288, people will gush over it. The making of such dogs will have become a lost art. Our descendants will wonder how we did it and say how clever we were. We shall be referred to lovingly as those grand old artists that flourished in the 19th century and produced those china dogs. The sampler that the eldest daughter did at school will be spoken of as tapestry of the Victorian era and be almost priceless. 
The blue and white mugs of the present-day roadside inn will be hunted up, all cracked and chipped, and sold for their weight in gold, and rich people will use them for claret cups, and travelers from Japan will buy up the presents from Ramsgate and souvenirs of Margate that may have escaped destruction, and take them back to Jado as ancient English curios. At this point, Harris threw away the skulls, got up and left his seat, and sat on his back, and stuck his legs in the air. Montmorency howled and turned into a somersault, and the top hamper jumped up and all the things came out. I was somewhat surprised, but I did not lose my temper. I said pleasantly enough, Hello, what's that for? What's that for? Why? No, on second thoughts I will not repeat what Harris said. I may have been to blame, I admit it, but nothing excuses violence of language and coarseness of expression, especially in a man who has been carefully brought up, as I know Harris has been. I was thinking of other things, and forgot, as anyone might easily understand, that I was steering, and the consequence was that we had got mixed up a good deal with the towpath. It was difficult to say for the moment which was us and which was the middle sex bank of the river, but we found out after a while and separated ourselves. Harris, however, said he had done enough for a bit and proposed that I should take a turn. So, as we were in, I got out and took the tow line and ran the boat on past Hampton Court. What a dear old wall that is that runs along by the river there. I never pass it without feeling better for the sight of it. Such a mellow, bright, sweet old wall. What a charming picture it would make, with the lichen creeping here and the moss growing there, a shy young vine peeping over the top at this spot to see what is going on upon the busy river, and the sober old ivy clustering a little further down. There are fifty shades and tints and hues in every ten yards of that old wall. If I could only draw and knew how to paint... I could make a lovely sketch of that old wall, I'm sure. I've often thought I should like to live at Hampton Court. It looks so peaceful and so quiet, and it is such a dear old place to ramble about in the early morning before many people are about. But there, I don't suppose I should really care for it when it came to actual practice. It would be so ghastly dull and depressing in the evening when your lamp cast uncanny shadows on the panel walls, and the echo of distant feet rang through the old, cold... Stone corners, and now drew near, and now died away, and all was death-like silence, save the beating of one's own heart. We are creatures of the sun, we men and women. We love light and life. That is why we crowd into the towns and cities, and the country grows more and more deserted every year. In the sunlight, in the daytime, when nature is alive and busy all around us, we like the open hillsides and the deep woods well enough, but in the night... When our mother earth has gone to sleep and left us waking, oh, the world seems so lonesome when we get frightened, like children in a silent house. Then we sit and sob and long for the gaslit streets and the sound of human voices and the answering throb of human life. We feel so helpless and so little in the great stillness when the dark trees rustle in the night wind. There are so many ghosts about and their silent sighs make us feel so sad. Let us gather together in the great cities and light huge bonfires of a million gas jets and shout and sing together and feel brave. Harris asked me if I've ever, if I'd ever been in the maze at Hampton Court. He said he went in once to show somebody else the way. He had studied it up in a map, and it was so simple that it seemed foolish, hardly worth a twopence charge for admission. Harris said he thought that map must have been got up as a practical joke, because it wasn't a bit like the real thing and only misleading. It was a country cousin that Harris took in. He said, "'Well, just go in here so that you can say you've been, but it's very simple. It's absurd to call it a maze. You keep on taking the first turning to the right. We'll just walk round for ten minutes and then go and get some lunch.' 
They met some people soon after they had got inside, who said they had been there for three quarters of an hour and had had about enough of it. Harris told them they could follow him if they liked. He was just going in, and then should turn round and come out again. They said it was very kind of him, and fell behind and followed. They picked up various other people who wanted to get it over, as they went along, until they absorbed all the persons in the maze. People who had given up all hopes of ever getting either in or out, or of ever seeing their home and friends again, plucked up courage at the sight of Harris and his party, and joined the procession, blessing him. Harris said he should judge there must have been twenty people following him in all, and one woman with a baby, who had been there all the morning, insisted on taking his arm for fear of losing him. Harris kept on turning to the right, but it seemed a long way, and his cousin said he supposed it was a very big maze. "'Oh, one of the largest in Europe,' said Harris. "'Yes, it must be,' replied the cousin, "'because we've walked a good two miles already.' Harris began to think it rather strange himself, but he held on until at last they passed the half-penny bun on the ground that Harris's cousin swore he had noticed there seven minutes ago. Harris said, "'Oh, impossible!' But the woman with the baby said, "'Not at all,' as she herself had taken it from the child and thrown it down there just before she met Harris. She also added that she wished she never had met Harris and expressed an opinion that he was an impostor. That made Harris mad, and he produced his map and explained his theory. "'That might map may be all right enough,' said one of the party, "'if you know whereabouts we in it we are now.' Harris didn't know, and suggested that the best thing to do would be to go back to the entrance and begin again. For the beginning again part of it, there was not much enthusiasm. But with regard to the advisability of going back to the entrance, there was complete unanimity, and so they turned and trailed after Harris again in the opposite direction. About ten minutes more passed, and then they found themselves in the center. Harris thought at first of pretending that that was what he had been aiming at, but the crowd looked dangerous, and he decided to treat it as an accident. Anyhow, they had got something to start from then. They did know where they were, and the map was once more consulted, and the thing seemed simpler than ever, and off they started for the third time. And three minutes later, they were back in the center again. After that, they simply couldn't get anywhere else. Whatever way they turned brought them back to the middle. It became so regular at length that some of the people stopped there and waited for the others to take a walk round and come back to them. Harris drew out his map again after a while, but the sight of it only infuriated the mob, and they told him to go and curl his hair with it. Harris said that he couldn't help feeling that, to a certain extent. He had become unpopular. They all got crazy at last and sang out for the keeper, and the man came and climbed up the ladder outside and shouted out directions to them. But all their heads were, by this time, in such a confused whirl that they were incapable of grasping anything— and so the man told them to stop where they were and he would come to them. They huddled together and waited, and he climbed down and came in. He was a young keeper, as luck would have it, and new to the business, and when he got in, he couldn't get back, get to them, and then he got lost. They caught sight of him every now and then, rushing about the other side of the hedge, and he would see them and rush to get them, and they would wait there for about five minutes, and then he would reappear again in exactly the same spot and ask them where they had been. They had to wait until one of the old keepers came back from his dinner before they got out. Harris said he thought it was a very fine maze so far as he was a judge, and we agreed that we would try to get George to go into it on our way back. Chapter 7 The River in its Sunday Garb Dress on the River A Chance for the Men Absence of Taste in Harris George's Blazer A Day with the Fashion Plate, Young Lady Mrs. Thomas's Tomb The Man Who Loves Not Graves and Coffins and Skulls Harris Mad His Views on George and Banks and Lemonade he performs tricks. 
It was while passing through Molsey Lock that Harris told me about his maze experience. It took us some time to pass through, as we were the only boat, and it is a big lock. I don't think I ever remember to have seen a Molesley Lock, Molesley Lock before, with only one boat in it. It is, I suppose, Bolter's not even accepted, the busiest lock on the river. I have stood and watched it sometimes, when you could not see any water at all, but only a brilliant tangle of bright blazers and gay caps and saucy hats and many-colored parasols and silken rugs and cloaks and streaming ribbons and dainty whites. When looking down into the lock from the quay, you might fancy it was a huge box into which flowers of every hue and shade had been thrown pell-mell and lay piled up in a rainbow heap that covered every corner. On a fine Sunday, it presents this appearance nearly all day long, while up the stream and down the stream lie, waiting their turns, outside the gates, long lines of still more boats, and boats are drawing near and passing away, so that the sunny river from the palace up to Hampton Church is dotted and decked with yellow and blue and orange and white and red and pink. All the inhabitants of Hampton and Molesley, Molesley, dress themselves up in boating costume and come and mooch round the lock with their dogs and flirt and smoke and watch the boats and altogether, what with the caps and jackets of the men, the pretty colored dresses of the women, the excited dogs, the moving boats, the white sails, the pleasant landscape, and the sparkling water, it is one of the gayest sights I know of near this dull old London town. The river affords a good opportunity for dress. For once in a way, we men are able to show our taste in colors, and I think that we come out very natty, if you ask me. I always like a little red in my things, red and black. You know my hair is a sort of golden brown, rather a pretty shade, I've been told, and a dark red matches it beautifully, and then I always think a light blue necktie goes so well with it, and a pair of those Russian leather shoes, and a red silk handkerchief round the waist. A handkerchief looks so much better than a belt. Harris always keeps to shades or mixtures of orange or yellow, but I don't think he is at all wise in this. His complexion is too dark for yellows. Yellows don't suit him. There can be no question about it. I want to take, I want him to take to blue as a background with white or cream for relief, but there, the less taste a person has in dress, the more obstinate he always seems to be. It is a great pity, because he never will be a success as it is, while there are one or two colors in which he might really not look so bad with his hat on. George has bought some new things for this trip, and I'm rather vexed about them. The blazer is loud. I should not like George to know that I thought so, but there really is no other word for it. He brought it home and showed it to us on Thursday evening. We asked him what color he called it, and he said he didn't know. He didn't think there was a name for the color. The man had told him it was an oriental design. George put it on and asked us what we thought of it. Harris said that, as an object to hang over a flower bed in early spring to frighten the birds away, he should respect it, but that, considered as an article of dress for a human being, except a Margate Negro, it made him ill. George got quite huffy, but as Harris said, if he didn't want his opinion, why did he ask for it? What troubles Harris and myself with regard to it is that we are afraid it will attract attention to the boat. Girls also don't look so half bad in a boat if prettily dressed. Nothing is more fetching to my thinking than a tasteful boating costume. But a boating costume, it would be as well if all ladies would understand, ought to be a costume that can be worn in a boat and not merely under a glass case. It utterly spoils an excursion if you have folk in the boat who are thinking all the time a good deal more of their dress than of the trip. It was my misfortune once to go for a water picnic with two ladies of this kind. We did have a lively time. They were both beautifully got up, all lace and silky stuff and flowers and ribbons and dainty shoes and light gloves. 
but they were dressed for a photographic studio, not for a river picnic. They were the boating costumes of a French fashion plate. It was ridiculous fooling about in them anywhere near real earth, air, and water. The first thing was that they thought the boat was not clean. We dusted all the seats for them, and they assured, and then assured them that it was, but they didn't believe us. One of them rubbed the cushion with the forefinger of her glove and showed the result to the other, and they both sighed and sat down with the air of early Christian martyrs trying to make themselves comfortable up against the stake. You are liable to occasionally splash a little when sculling, and it appeared that a drop of water ruined these costumes. The mark never came out, and a stain was left on the dress forever. I was stroke. I did my best. I feathered some two feet high, and I paused at the end of each stroke to let the blades drip before returning them, and I picked out a smooth bit of water to drop them into again each time. Bow said after a while that he did not feel himself a sufficiently accomplished oarsman to pull with me, but that he would sit still if I would allow him and study my stroke. He said it interested him. But notwithstanding all this, and try as I would, I could not help an occasional flicker of water from going over those dresses. The girls did not complain, but they huddled up close together and set their lips firm, and every time a drop touched them they visibly shrank and shuddered. It was a noble sight to see them suffering thus in silence, but it unnerved me altogether. I am too sensitive. I got wild and fitful in my rowing, and splashed more and more the harder I tried not to. I gave it up at last and said I'd row bow. Bow thought the arrangement would be better, too, and we changed places. The ladies gave an involuntary sigh of relief when they saw me go, and quite brightened up for a moment. Poor girls, they had better have put up with me. The man they had got now was a jolly, light-hearted, thick-headed sort of chap with about as much sensitiveness in him as there might be in a Newfoundland puppy. You might look daggers at him for an hour, and he would not notice it, and it would not trouble him if he did. He set a good, rollicking, dashing stroke that sent the spray playing all over the boat like a fountain, and made the whole crowd sit up straight in no time. When he spread more than a pint of water over one of those dresses, he would give a pleasant little laugh and say, "'Beg your pardon, I'm sure,' and offer them his handkerchief to wipe it off with. "'Oh, it's of no consequence,' the poor girls would murmur in reply, and covertly draw rugs and coats over themselves, and try and protect themselves with their lace parasols. At lunch, they had a very bad time of it. People wanted them to sit on the grass, and the grass was dusty, and the tree trunks against which they were invited to lean did not appear to have been brushed for weeks, so they spread their handkerchiefs on the ground and sat on these, bolt upright. Somebody, in walking about with a plate of beefsteak pie, tripped over a root and sent the pie flying. None of it went over them, fortunately, but the accident suggested a fresh danger to them, and agitated them, and whenever anybody moved about after that, with anything in his hand that could fall and make a mess, they watched that person with growing anxiety until he sat down again. "'Now then, you girls,' said our friend bow to them, cheerily, after it was all over. "'Come along, you've got to wash up!' They didn't understand him at first. When they grasped the idea, they said they feared they did not know how to wash up. "'Oh, I'll show you. I'll soon show you,' he cried. "'It's rare fun. You lie down on your—I mean, you lean over the bank, you know, and slush the things about in the water.' The elder sister said that she was afraid that they hadn't got on dresses suited to the work. "'Oh, they'll be all right,' said he lightheartedly. "'Tuck them up!' And he made them do it, too. He told them that that sort of thing was half the fun of a picnic. They said it was very interesting. Now I come to think it over. Was that young man as dense-headed as we thought? Or was he... No, impossible. There was such a simple, childlike expression about him. Harris wanted to get out at Hampton Church to go and see Mrs. Thomas's tomb. 
Who is Mrs. Thomas? I asked. How should I know, replied Hare. She's a lady that's got a funny tomb, and I want to see it. I objected. I don't know whether it is that I am built wrong, but I never did seem to hanker after tombstones myself. I know that the proper thing to do when you go to a village or a town is to rush off to the churchyard and enjoy the graves, but it is a recreation that I always deny myself. I take no interest in creeping round dim and chilly churches behind wheezy old men and reading epitaphs. Not even the sight of a bit of cracked brass let into a stone affords me what I call real happiness. I shock respectable sextons by the imperturbability I am able to assume before exciting inscriptions, and by my lack of enthusiasm for the local family history, while my ill-concealed anxiety to get outside wounds their feelings. One golden morning of a sunny day, I leant against the low stone wall that guarded a little village church, and I smoked and drank in deep, calm gladness from the sweet, restful scene, the gray old church in, in its clustering ivy and its quaint carved wooden porch, the white lane winding down the hill between tall rows of elms, the thatched roof cottages peeping above their trim-kept hedges, the silver river in the hollow, the wounded hills beyond. It was a lovely landscape. It was idyllic, poetical, and it inspired me. I felt good and noble. I felt I didn't want to be sinful and wicked anymore. I would come and live here, and never do any more wrong, and lead a blameless, beautiful life, and have silver hair when I got old, and all that sort of thing. In that moment, I forgave all my friends and relations for their wickedness and cussedness, and I blessed them. They did not know that I blessed them. They went their abandoned way, all unconscious of what I, far away in that peaceful village, was doing for them. But I did it, and I wished that I could let them know that I had done it, because I wanted to make them happy. I was going on, thinking away all these grand, tender thoughts, when my reverie was broken in upon by a shrill, piping voice crying out, "'All right, sir, I'm a-coming, I'm a-coming, it's all right, sir, don't you be in a hurry!' I looked up and saw an old, bald-headed man hobbling across the churchyard toward me, carrying a bunch of keys in his hand that shook and jingled at every step. I motioned him away with silent dignity, but he still advanced, screeching out the while, "'I'm a-coming, sir, I'm a-coming! I'm a little lame, I ain't as spry as I used to be. This way, sir!' "'Go away, you miserable old man,' I said. "'I've come just as soon as I could, sir,' he replied. "'My missus never saw you till this mo just this moment. "'You follow me, sir.' "'Go away,' I repeated. "'Leave me before I get over the wall and slay you.' "'He seemed surprised. "'Don't you want to see the tombs?' he said. "'No,' I answered. "'I don't. "'I want to stop here, leaning up against this gritty old wall. "'Go away and don't disturb me. "'I am chock-full of beautiful and noble thoughts, "'and I want to, to stop like it.' because it feels nice and good. Don't you come fooling about, making me mad, chivying away all my better feelings with this silly tombstone nonsense of yours. Go away and get somebody to bury you cheap, and I'll pay half the expense. He was bewildered for a moment. He rubbed his eyes and looked hard at me. I seemed human enough on the outside. He couldn't make it out. He said, You's a stranger in these parts. You don't live here? No, I said, I don't. You wouldn't if I did. Well, then, he said, you, you want to see the tombs, graves, folks been buried, you know, coffins. You are an untruther, I replied, getting roused. I do not want to see the tombs, not your tombs. Why should I? We have graves of our own, our family has. Why, my Uncle Padre has a tomb in Kensal Green Cemetery that is the pride of all that countryside. And my grandfather's vault at Bow is capable of accommodating eight visitors. 
while my great-aunt Susan has a brick grave in Finchley Churchyard, with a headstone with a coffee-pot sort of thing in bas-relief upon it, and six-inch best white stone coping all the way round that cost pounds. When I want graves, it is to see those places that I go and revel. I do not want other folks. When you yourself are buried, I will come and see yours. That is all I can do for you. He burst into tears. He said that one of the tombs had a bit of stone upon the top of it that had been said by some to be probably part of the remains of the figure of a man, and that another had some words carved upon it that nobody had ever been able to decipher. I still remained obdurate, and in broken-hearted tones he said, Oh, won't you come and see the memorial window? I would not even see that, so he fired his last shot. He drew near and whispered hoarsely, I've got a couple of skulls down in the crypt, he said. Come and see those. Oh, do come and see the skulls. You are a young man out for holiday, and you want to enjoy yourself. Come and see the skulls. Harris, however, revels in tombs and graves and epitaphs and monumental inscriptions, and the thought of not seeing Mrs. Thomas's grave made him crazy. He said he had looked forward to seeing Mrs. Thomas's grave from the first moment that the trip was proposed said he wouldn't have joined if it hadn't been for the idea of seeing Mrs. Thomas's tomb. I reminded him of George, and how, had, and how he had to get the boat up to Shepperton by five o'clock to meet him. And then he went for George. Why was George to fool about all day and leave us to lug this lumbering old top-heavy barge up and down the river by ourselves to meet him? Why couldn't George come and do some work? Why couldn't he have got the day off and come down with us? Bank be blowed. What good was he at the bank? I never see him doing any work there, continued Harris. Whenever I go in, he sits behind a bit of glass all day, trying to look as if he was doing something. What's the good of a man behind a bit of glass? I have to work for my living. Why can't he work? What use is he there, and what's the good of their banks? They take your money, and then when you draw a check, they send it back smeared all over with no effects. Refer to drawer. What's the good of that? That's the sort of trick they served me twice last week. I'm not going to stand it much longer. I shall withdraw my account. If he was here, we could go and see that tomb. I don't believe he's at the bank at all. He's larking about somewhere. That's what he's doing, leaving us to do all the work. I'm going to get out and have a drink. I pointed out to him that we were miles away from a pub. Then he went on about the river, and what was the good of the river, and what was everyone who came out of, and was everyone who came out on the river to die of thirst? It is always best to let Harris have his head when he gets like this. Then he pumps himself out and is quiet afterwards. I reminded him that there was concentrated lemonade in the hamper, and a gallon jar of water in the nose of the boat, and that the two only wanted mixing to make a cool and refreshing beverage. Then he flew off about lemonade and such like Sunday school slops, as he termed them, ginger beer, raspberry syrup, etc., etc. He said they all produced dyspepsia and ruined body and soul alike, and were the cause of half the crime in England. He said he must drink something, however, and climbed upon the seat and leant over to get the bottle. It was right at the bottom of the hamper and seemed difficult to find, and he had to lean over further, farther, and farther, and in trying to steer at the same time, from a topsy-turvy point of view, he pulled the wrong line and sent the boat into the bank, and the shock upset him, and he dived down right into the hamper and stood there on his head, holding on to the sides of the boat like grim death, his legs sticking up into the air. He dared not move for fear of going over, and had to stay there till I could get hold of his legs and haul him back. And that made him madder than ever.